You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. In a market economy, rationing occurs naturally, with the price of goods and services determining what each individual can afford. Those with the most money will have access to greater rations of all commodities. In non-price rationing, or what most of us think of when we hear the word rationing, it is some authority, usually the government, that controls access to commodities. My guest today has pointed out that price rationing affects the consumption of health care in the United States today, and he proposes that our political leaders should address the rationing of health care in a forthright manner. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Chicago is my guest, Dr. Charles Whelan, lecturer in public policy at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago, and author of the book, Naked Economics, Undressing the Dismal Science. Welcome, Dr. Whelan. Thank you for having me. Dr. Whelan, you propose that political leaders should acknowledge that market forces make for inequalities in consumption and any attempts at health care reform should openly address rationing. Why is it important that they face this economic fact outright? Well, it's curious because if you were to throw the word rationing at most people on the street, they would kind of recoil. If you mention markets to them, they're quite comfortable with it. But I think my first point is that markets are merely a mechanism for rationing goods. So why don't you have a 60-inch plasma TV in your basement? Or maybe you do, but I'm assuming you probably don't. It's probably because you didn't want to pay what it would cost to do that. It's the same reason I didn't go to the Super Bowl last year. I didn't want to pay $1,200 for a ticket. So when you look around at things like Mercedes-Benz or TVs or houses or anything like that, we ration it based on prices. So those who want it the most and have the most resources will get the goods that they want, and those who can't afford it will choose not to. When it comes to health care, we ration, but in an odd kind of way, in that those folks who have pretty good insurance will get high level of benefits with fairly expansive services. How do we ration then? Well, those folks who don't have insurance or who are underinsured will not have access to some even basic care. So there is rationing going on, but people don't think of it that way. And you feel that it's important for politicians to think of it that way? Any health care plan, including the status quo, is going to give some people health coverage and some people less health coverage. And I think if you don't explicitly face that fact then you're not really taking on the healthcare system squarely. So if you are comfortable with the status quo, I would say the, the big drawback to the status quo is those folks who are not getting basic care because they don't have insurance are not getting, in a lot of cases, services that are relatively cheap and could provide enormous benefits. And so from a social efficiency standpoint, that's really a terrible situation. Conversely, a lot of folks who have insurance expect that the insurance will pay for whatever service they might want or need. And the problem there, although it's an uncomfortable topic, is that you don't, you know, out in the regular world, you say, okay, this is going to cost me $10. Is it going to provide me $10 worth of benefit? When you are insured, you say, this is going to cost me nothing because a third party is going to pay for it. Will it provide me one penny of benefit, even if the insurance company then gets a bill for $100,000? So there is a distortion in individual behavior once insurance is provided. So my second point is basically if somebody doesn't step in and say, once you're insured and a third party is paying for your services and say, well, you know what? 
this may not be worth $100,000, then you're going to continue to see the kinds of escalating costs that we've had for the past decade. We talk about the rationing that may be taking place within the U.S. market, but a subset of individuals who are part of a rationing system where an authority is controlling access to commodities is the insurance industry. Talk to us about how the insurance industry rations goods and services. Well, you know, the curious thing is I think they ration probably in a way that's not terribly efficient. So there's a lot of effort put into screening people off of the insurance roles who are going to be high risks or expensive cases. So you have problems with people either not getting insurance or it's just prohibitively expensive because the insurance company's real risk is I'm going to insure someone today and find out tomorrow that they've got a chronic illness that's going to cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars. So a lot of the rationing they do is simply can I keep people off of my company roles? Now, once you are insured, there's a lot less rationing, actually, than you would see in a system like the National Health Service in Britain, where the authorities actually say, okay, here's a new prescription medicine. You know what? It's a lot more expensive, and we don't, just, we don't believe that it provides benefits that correspond to its increased costs, and we're not going to pay for it. The insurance companies, by and large, once you're on the rolls, will pay for whatever health care comes along, provided it's not experimental or something like that. If it's expensive, it's probably covered. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Charles Whelan, lecturer in public policy at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago and author of the book, Naked Economics, Undressing the Dismal Science. So, Dr. Whelan, what would be a more efficient way for insurance companies to ration? Well, it doesn't have to be insurance companies, they're just, if you want to control costs, and that's the important caveat, if you don't care about runaway costs, then we don't really need to change anything. And if you don't care about the fact that there are some uninsured folks who aren't getting basic care that actually would be extremely cost effective, so for relatively small investments, we could get big gains in health outcomes. If that doesn't bother you about the status quo, then we're fine. But if you look at the American system and see us spending 14 or 15 percent of GDP and having worse health outcomes than countries that spend a lot less, whether it's Japan, the U.K., Canada, what have you, even when you control for demographics and other things like that, then I think you say, all right, what's the key inefficiency of the system? And I would say it's twofold. They're kind of mirror images of the same basic problem. The first is that the insurance system we've got now pays for a lot of care that may not necessarily be worth the cost. So the example, which is just kind of an egregious example that I use, is your 92-year-old grandmother goes in for a double hip replacement, and it's covered by insurance. Now, is that the best use of $150,000 or whatever it's going to cost, or could we use that money to immunize kids or provide basic care for people who have diabetes or preventive care for people who are at risk of acute illness or what have you. Now, you're going to say, well, no, I don't want someone to say no to my 92-year-old grandmother. If she wants to pay for it out of pocket, she still has that right. But in terms of how we use our insurance dollars, there may be social benefits from somebody saying, no, this just isn't cost-effective. The resources could be spent somewhere else. Yeah, I think the grandma argument could account for a lot of the heated email that you've received after your recent article about health care and rationing. How do you say no to treatments with benefits that are too small to justify their costs? You know, and I think that brings us back to the first thing we talked about, which is we say no all the time everywhere in the rest of society. There are people who don't have homes. We say no to them simply because they can't buy it. And so I think what confounds all of this in the context of insurance is basically, since you don't have to pay any of the marginal cost of the treatment, 
you assume basically that you're entitled to whatever may do that one cent worth of benefit. In the case of Britain, which I think is not a terrible model to follow, basically you have a panel of experts who look at the health benefits of some prospective treatment in terms of how many good years of life is it going to provide relative to the cost. And they're the ones who basically say yes or no in terms of whether the National Health Service is going to pay for this. And, you know, that you have to also remember that there is a benefit to saying no to grandma, which is you're saying yes to somebody else. You're freeing up resources. So it's about saying yes and no. And if you don't say no to grandma, you are implicitly saying no to somebody else. And that's the point you have to remember. We're always saying no. It's just a question of whether we do it out loud or not. 49 million Americans are uninsured, and 10 million of those are middle class. This group often chooses not to purchase insurance because it would consume too much of their income. Would you say this is a case of personal rationing? No, because it's basically, in some cases, a case of people passing on costs to the rest of society. So if they got sick without insurance and then paid for all of their care out of their own pockets, that would be fine. The complicating factor here is people who are uninsured have a bad break, and they end up in the emergency room or somewhere else as charity care, and we all pay the cost. So to my mind, there ought to actually, for those who can afford it, there ought to be some kind of mandatory insurance. For the same reason, we have mandatory auto insurance, which is basically if you're out there as an uninsured driver and you hit my car, I'm going to end up paying the the cost, which is not correct. So basically, for those who can afford it, I think ultimately a more efficient system is going to do mandatory insurance, much like Massachusetts did as part of their state overhaul. You know, although plenty of people are upset about the state of health care in America, it seems that because we don't have a simple relationship between cost and goods and services delivered, that many people are not tuned in to the disconnect between the U.S. spending more than as you mentioned, any other developed country on health care, $2.2 trillion a year, and yet we're near the bottom in life expectancy, infant mortality, and overall performance. How can you explain the tolerance for a transaction like that? I think a lot of the what you see is, is opaque, that people aren't actually seeing the costs. You know, when I get my contract every year from the University of Chicago, the letter has my salary, and then it has the cash cost of the benefits that they pay on my behalf. And it's always an eye-popping number. And I think what people don't realize is if the university were not paying that eye-popping number in benefits, I would be getting at least some of it in cash. So some of those costs are hidden, which is why you hear employers complaining a lot more than employees. And then, of course, when they try and pass it along to employees, then everybody wakes up. So the first is a lot of these costs are not as explicit as they should be. You know, here's the bottom line of what I'm paying for your health care coverage. The second thing to bear in mind, I think the Clinton administration learned this when they tried to overhaul the system, is most people are dissatisfied with the system overall. They look at the system and they say, this isn't working as well as as it should. However, a high proportion of people are satisfied with their own insurance coverage. I would put myself in that bucket. My insurance is very good from the university, but I think the system is rotten. And the risk politically is people are afraid that if you open the hood on the system, it may mess up their personal situation. And that's, you remember the Harry and Louise ads when Clinton tried to overhaul insurance. It just had two people around the dinner table saying, well, gee, what happens to us? And I think that's the political risk. On the other hand, it is outweighed, or may be outweighed, I guess, by this sense of middle-class anxiety that, you know, I could be one of those folks who loses a job and suddenly I've got no benefits, and that could really mess up my family. Right, and there, too, you have the hidden cost of carrying other people who don't have 
benefits. Right, exactly. The cost spillover. I think the other thing that economists are starting to look at is this is a real disincentive for small business, for entrepreneurs. If you look at people who have a great business idea and they want to go off and launch it, often you will hear people saying, well, I can't do it. I need the benefits. Right. Let's let's talk about that. A very long time ago now, people used to pay out of pocket for health care. Well, when did health care become linked with employment in the U.S.? Well, this is a terrific lesson, because, and I always give my students this one. It was an unintended consequence of a policy around World War II. There were price controls to try and control inflation. And the Roosevelt administration had basically said, you cannot give raises to people beyond a certain amount because that will be inflationary. Well, people are always looking for a way to find a loophole. The loophole in this case was, gee, I can't pay you anymore, but you know what? I will pay for your health coverage. And people at the time, that wasn't a great expense, but it was a nice little perquisite. And ever after, basically, we started to associate health insurance with employment. The U.S. is anomalous in that respect. And it's ironic, actually, that at the same time, the British were building their national health system. So basically different contexts, and they came up with a system, and now we're in different places. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Charles Whelan, lecturer in public policy at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Whelan. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.